Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Today's guest is one of my friends. When I say friends, we've known each other for about a year when he approached me here in Dubai saying, Spence, I keep hearing your name. I'd love to have a coffee with you. And from that coffee onwards, we've formed a great friendship. But he has got an amazing story. You know, when people struggle, they go bankrupt. They could curl up and die. They could come out punching. Well, guess what? He came out punching. And after that huge bankruptcy he suffered, he then went on to build a hugely, hugely successful business. I'm really looking forward to chatting today with someone I know you're going to enjoy. Welcome, Matt Haycox. Cue the music. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. So the introduction I did for you today was based around you being my mate. (laughs) It sounds like things have changed. (laughs) Anyway, let me tell you. Well, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I know you have a podcast. I've been on your podcast, and so you're keen in that space. But um, I think a lot of people are underestimated. And what I really respected about you was how we first met. Now, do you remember how that was? I remember we met in the Fairmont Hotel, didn't we? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Go on. So you sent me a message saying, uh, I, I talked to people here in Dubai. I've been here for a period of time, but your name keeps cropping up. Yeah. So I wanted to message you and ask you if you'd like to have a coffee because I'd like to get to know you. And um, and then we sat talking for a couple of hours and we had a great great conversation and got to know each other. And I was I was very grateful for the fact that you reached out. So first of all, thank you for that. But I like your style. <laughs> now, you've uh, you got quite an interesting journey and, and, and it starts back by being the son of a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd have no pride about that. I'd, have, I'd happily take his money. <laughs> And um and and also Joan Collins' love child is that, is, is that correct? So just just do me a favour and take me back because I, I think your your business journey is interesting and what I want people to do today is to learn about really the understanding of of the psychology of pain and struggle okay but then also what you do now because it's so different from what you did then how you got into it and then maybe you can tell us a bit more about how that business helps people. Well, I guess we've got nearly thirty years of history, so I'll I'll break it into little chunks, and you uh, and you 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 jump in when you want me to elaborate. But I mean, I um, you say I was the son of a billionaire. He, he wasn't a billionaire, but he was he was a business owner. Uh, so I guess you know being around an entrepreneurial dad uh, must have rubbed off on me on a young age. I mean that coupled with the fact that I think you know back in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, you, you were told that the only way to make any real money was to own your own business. I think you know the two things kind of convinced me that uh, I was going to own my own business. Didn't know what it was going to be. I just you knew I wanted to be in business. So I mean, I remember being, you know, eleven, twelve, thirteen, and all the, all my uh, books would be, you know, Donald Trump biographies, Alan Sugar biographies, and any, any kind of business content I could get my hands on. Uh, spent my teenage years buying and selling anything I could buy and sell to sell at the markets. You know, in, inflatable chairs, Tamagotchi pets, toilet rolls, uh, a, a, a website. I did a bit bit of domain name squatting when I was about fifteen or sixteen. Um, and, and, and none of that worked, obviously. <laughs> uh, and my parents wanted me to go to uni. Um, and because again, back in the kind of late nineties, you know, mid to late nineties, I think if you didn't go to uni, you were already perceived as a failure. You know, you, you, you needed that university degree to get you into any kind of corporate or respectable life. Uh, and I, I didn't want to go, uh, not because I had an issue with uni, but I just felt it was going to hold me back three years when I could be out there, uh, you know, buying and selling Tamagotchi pets and, uh, and, and making my millions. So um, I convinced my parents to let me take a gap year uh, and I was going to work during that gap year and hopefully you know, make enough money to not have to have to go back to uni. And my dad had just invested in a business at the time, uh, making uh, uniforms and corporate clothing like for bus drivers, security guards, that kind of thing. But because he was retired, he'd invested. It was a very passive investment and it was only supposed to be passive uh, because it was supposed to be a, a well-run, successful business. I went in to do some selling. 
Uh, that again, that was I was going to learn to sell. I was going to you know be mentored by various people in the business, and it was anything but a successful and well-run business. It was falling to pieces. My dad was getting robbed left, right, and centre, and the small investment he was supposed to have put in had kind of ten x within about five months. So I was you know going home every night, you know, banging my hands on the table, saying, "Dad, you know you're getting screwed here. You're they're running off with your money. They're taking the piss. You know you've got to get back to work and do something about it." And my dad. You know, he, he kind of agreed with me, but he was like, I've had 25 years of business. I've had 30 years of your mother. You know, I, I need to uh, <laughs> I need to take a break. And even if that means I lose my money, I lose my money. And, you know, after a few weeks of me going on and on about this, I think he finally relented and said, you know what, you can't do any worse than these guys are doing. You go in and, you know, do whatever you want with it kind of thing. I would say he never gave me the business. He just basically said, you know, crack on and, and you, you can run it. And I kind of went in the next day, fired everybody, uh, everybody part of this little old chappy in the warehouse, and and started completely from scratch. And I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. It wasn't that I wanted to get everyone because I had a plan that was better than their plan. I just knew that it wasn't that I knew what to do right. I just knew what shouldn't be done wrong. And that was really, I guess, my journey over the next three years of, tr of trying to rebuild that business and you know and restructure and restaff every department. I mean, we had customers who wouldn't deal with us, suppliers who wouldn't supply us, banks who wouldn't fund us. You know, operationally we were inept. I mean, everything was a problem and I guess I kind of got things right by not getting it wrong and, and and it was whilst obviously at the time I probably thought I knew everything because I'd you know read it read it all in books you know the reality was I knew nothing and I, but I was just trying to trying to know a little bit more than everybody else who'd been getting it wrong before me and over three years that business went from losing about 300 grand a year to turning our first profit of about 30 grand it wasn't big numbers, but it was more the principal principal factor that, you know, I always say, even to this day, I say those three years were the most problematic learning curve of any three years in my whole career and probably more than 99.9% .9 of any other business owner I'll have at all. And, you know, I always say that, you know, you never learn anything from the things that go right. You always only learn from the things that go wrong. And I had absolutely everything possible go wrong, every conceivable problem thrown at me. So it really was you know, a fantastic learning curve. Never wanted to really, I guess, run a business like that. Uh, and that was really the time for me to move on. So I was kind of 21, 22 at that point uh, and went on to go and start working leisure. Not because I knew anything about leisure, but I did also at that point think I knew now knew everything about business because I'd had, I'd had three, you know, another three years of learning so many things I didn't know before. But learned very quickly that I still knew nothing about leisure and still didn't really know that much that much about business because every day was a new story and a new problem. So um, I started I started running a community pub. I mean, obviously, anyone English uh, listening or watching this, you know, very much knows what our council estate community pubs are back in the UK. Uh, you know, pilot high, sell it cheap. You know, hub of the community type type uh, units. And I ran two or three of those to varying degrees of unsuccess. And then I opened a bar in the city centre, which wasn't very successful at all. And I learned very quickly that, you know, what we were missing or what other successful venues had was, let's say, ancillary streams of income. You know, not just the uh, not just the alcohol itself, but something else, whether that was money from the door or money from promoters and DJs or food or you know, whatever you were selling, something else. Um, and in my personal life, I used to spend most nights in the local strip club. So I deemed the fact that I knew, because I, I knew the strip club, knew the girls, knew the manager, that therefore qualified me to go and open a strip club. And I could see that, I could see that what I was missing in my in my bar was uh, money that the girls could be paying as a money that the um, the customers will be paying us to come in. So went off, closed the units I had and opened a bar in Wakefield, in a, a strip club in Wakefield in 2004 called Wildcats. Okay, that was that was the end of the first chapter, really, and and the, and the start of the next one. And Wildcats and Wakefield was, you know, was a, a pretty successful unit from the get go. Uh, I think, you know, part part planning, part luck, uh, and it, you know, it was a, a good time uh, both in the economy in general. I mean, you know, two thousand and four was was the start of kind of, I guess, um, vociferous credit card spending and, and and easy supply of money into into the economy. It was also the the start of strip clubs becoming i'd almost say respectable at that point you know they, they'd gone from being being seedy and underworld to you know spearmint rhino was getting pro, uh, prolific and Springfellow was still a, a almost a household time back it back in the uk so it was you know, the, the money was right the concept was right and the timing was right and we went off on a pretty exciting journey from then really so i was 23 24 first club opened and in the next four years 
uh, we opened 11 strip clubs. I was the biggest strip club operator in the UK. We had 65 bars and pubs. I had a chain of discount retail stores. I'd started a small finance book. I had a property portfolio. And I've built many, many, many different businesses, but done them all off the back of raising, learning how to raise money. And that was something I knew nothing about. I mean, you know, when I'd opened that first strip club, uh, I had some of my own capital from before and I borrowed some money off the local HSBC, which obviously I understood that side of raising money, but I never, uh, I'd never heard of asset finance. I didn't know about leasing, didn't, you know, the word alternative lender didn't even exist back in 2004. Uh, and I remember one day, uh, I, find, I got introduced to a finance broker. I think the bank manager must have put me onto him because you know, he couldn't give me any more money. And this guy came in and said, well, I can refinance your air conditioning for you. You know, We'll do a sale and lease back on this. I, I didn't even know what the guy meant. He was just, I just signed this paper. He basically told me that he now owned my air conditioning, um, but he was buying it off me for 30 grand and I'd rent it back off him for like 600 quid a month for the next three or four years. And I was like, don't really understand what just happened, but I've just got 30 grand I didn't have yesterday. Um, I wonder what else I can go and uh, can go and finance up. And that was really then how I started to learn about raising, learn about raising money, learn about business finance. And over the next you know three, four, five years, I think I mean I think at our peak in 2008, I had something like 180 live finance agreements from 75 different lenders. You know some household names through to some little known names through the people you would never ever ever heard of because they were you know small one-man band you know two three four five million pound loan books um and you know we, we i guess i built my mini empire if you like on on the back of short-term expensive debt uh you know i was i was very very green to it because i in those days it was my first cycle i just thought when we have a cash flow hole i just ring this guy and he sends me some money and i can i can i can plug that cash flow hole and you know, and that's what we did because you know, we were borrowing short-term money to open the venues, even though the venues were profitable. They were never cash flow generated enough to pay off the debt at the rate that we were borrowing it. So whenever I'd have a shortfall, someone else would just lend me some money. And um, I guess I, you know, I wasn't stupid. I, I I knew that it couldn't go on forever, but I also did did believe at some point we'd do a grand refinance or or sell or sell the business. Unfortunately, neither of those two things happened because as we were about to do the refinance around you know, uh, middle of the year 2008, the credit crunch had just started um, and the banks that had already agreed to probably do something with us shut their doors. I had to go back to my existing lenders to say, listen, guys, we've got a problem here. Can't refinance you. Also can't continue to pay you at this rate. Uh, we need to, uh, you know, we need to rejig the debt. And, you know, and I never asked anyone to take a haircut, never asked anyone to, to, to lose any money. I just asked everyone to extend uh, extend the credit terms, you know, from say two years to five, three years to seven, whatever it may be. And I said, listen, go charge me penalty interest, do whatever you need to do, but let's just stretch this so we all get out of it. And I always maintain that, you know, if this had have happened a year, 18 months later, I'd be telling a very different story to today because a year or so after that point, these finance companies had taken such a beating that if you turned around to them and offered them 10p in the pound, they'd be, you know, they'd be biting your arm off. Back then, they knew pain was coming, but they didn't really know what that pain was going to be. And then, you know, they still believed in the value of everyone's personal guarantees. So they bankrupted you. So, so basically, they, I, I, I said, let's rejig it. They wouldn't do it. They said, we've got your personal guarantee. I'm like, I've given 45 million quid of the personal guarantees. You know, that you're not going to be getting anything on it. And they said, well, you, you don't want to go bankrupt. You'll find a way. I said, I don't want to go bankrupt. You're right, but I will not find a way to find 45 million quid. Um, and I think you know they probably thought I was bluffing. I, uh, I you know, I really had no option. Uh, one of the one of them put me into uh, well, one of them started the bankruptcy process, and I just took the view there's no point fighting that because if I fight him, the next one will be there tomorrow, and just effectively put my hands up and uh, and 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 the, and the lot went overnight. And um, I was talking to someone about this the other day. I say overnight, which almost sounds a sounds a, a grand exaggeration. Okay, it wasn't overnight, but this process took two three four weeks and it literally it was it was that quick from i mean i remember probably july 2008 i still had a 999 credit rating still borrowing money at that point you know beginning of august slightly problematic 8th of september um personally bankrupt so tell me tell me what that did for your psychology at the time because it's very easy to be almost almost flippant in a response to that but where did where did your head go in that moment when you thought you know what did did you worry about what other people thought did you worry about what your image was how old were you on that day i was 27 okay so a, a particular age where you would at 27 care about what other people thought 
Who did you think you'd let down or uh, how did it impact you? I mean, a few questions there, aren't there? I mean, in, in, the first one, first one in terms of ego first, I never really had an ego about it. I think, you know, back then, even to today, you know, I, 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 I love money. I love the, the trappings and the goodies, but I think, you know, I, I also, you know, I can stand on my, I can stand on my own two feet for, you know, for, for my banter, you know, <laughs> even if it's me, me that says so, but I think, I think I can, you know, I can hold my own with, with, with most audience, whether or not I've got money or, you know, I think I've got enough to bring to the table without, with, with, without it being, uh, I guess, something that defines me. So I was never, I was never too fussed about losing it, A, because of that and B, because I, I knew, I mean, I probably never had any reason to know at the time, but I knew it would only be temporary because I, I knew I knew I'd find a way out of it. I think in terms of who, who do I feel I let down, I didn't really feel like I let myself down because I guess you know I, I didn't know any different, didn't know any better. I did I did feel for some of the creditors. Uh, I say some, I mean, you could say all of them, but I mean, some of them are big institutions, so you don't don't really give them monkeys. But you know, if it was a smaller lender who it was, you know, it was their bread and butter, their you know, their their own money effectively that they'd lent uh, you know I did feel for the fact that they'd lost that money that said you know most of the creditors knew that I hadn't set out to shaft them you know I think mean, there's a very big difference between can't pay and won't pay and you know these guys lent with an open mind you know I, I, I borrowed with the best intentions and unfortunately unfortunately it just didn't work out so I guess they, they, they were the, probably the only people I felt I let down but um, you know I mean back then I I think one of the biggest mistakes, and you know, I try and look back over the last 20 odd years of business, and one of the biggest mistakes I, I made was taking advice from the wrong people around that time. Because uh, when it comes to something like bankruptcy, I mean, with, with most most problems in business, you know, you get stressed about them because you don't understand how to deal with them. You know, you, you don't understand what's on the other side of that door. And something, you know, many, some problems, uh, I guess, you know, may happen repeatedly. So, you, you know, you go through the door once and it becomes easier as time goes on. But something as grand and as terminal as bankruptcy, you know, hopefully you only experience, hopefully you experience it never. The reality is you, you may experience it once, but you know, you, you, you've never really got anyone to advise you, advise you in it because everyone's got the, their own two pennyworth to chuck in and, and the advisors either have their own vested interest or, or, or don't really understand it either. And I was surrounded by a lot of people at the time who were very much of the fact that you know your life's over uh you know you you finished at 27 your credibility's gone you'll you'll, you'll never work again and I, mean, I don't know if it impacted me impacted me because I mean I guess it was being talked into into one ear and I didn't really have any any other intelligence to counter it with so I guess I'm listening to them at what on the one side that everything's done but the other side of it is just well well, it can't be because I'm 27 and I've got a wife and kid to pay for, and I know I'm not here to be poor, so I need to I need to find an answer. But you know, I had no one really kind of you know teaching me so, about that. So answer. were you always in the in the space of uh, the headspace of tomorrow, tomorrow, <coughs> rather than in the in the headspace of, of dwelling on 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 what had happened. Yeah, and I, I never dwelled on it. And you know, obviously, this is a question I often get asked about. You know, how how did you kind of bounce back from what must have been one of the most terminally demotivating, you know, suicidal for many experiences ever? And I always say, I don't really have a, I don't really have a, a motivating answer of you know, like a rah rah cry to arms. It was just very simply that I was just pragmatic about it. Okay, this has happened. That was yesterday. Today's today. Tomorrow's tomorrow. I've got a one-year-old daughter at home. I've got I've got a wife and a mortgage. You know, I can't sit here and moan. I need, I need, to, I need to get out there and so, do some work. I've heard you say that before. So, what does that say about you? And what does that say about you as an entrepreneur? More importantly, I mean, I guess, I guess it's uh, personification of of the characteristics that are necessary as an entrepreneur in terms of you know re resilience and tenacity and and and, yeah. the, and the fact that there's the, there's going to be ups and downs. I mean, you know, one of the stories I kind of often often tell about it that how pragmatic I was, you know, to to, to the bankruptcy. Uh, and one of the things that still still sticks in my mind to today was uh, obviously we had some nice cars as a as a family and they were all on various you know various personal HP agreements, personal lease agreements, whatever. And some of them had gone. Well, they'd all gone apart from my wife's Range Rover, uh, and that hadn't gone just purely because they, they they hadn't come to collect it. And I remember one night this must have been six weeks, eight weeks after the bankruptcy. Uh, and I'm, stu I'm stood in the in the bedroom, and you can see out out onto the uh, forecourt of the house from this point, and we're getting ready to go out for dinner. 
And I can hear the missus screaming, Matt, Matt, quick, quick. And I come and look out the window and there's her car being loaded on and pulled onto a low loader. And she's like, what are we going to do? They're taking my car. And I said, well, we're going to take a taxi to the restaurant. It's a nice, aren't we? And, you know, when I, when I tell the story, it's almost like, you know, like humorous or people think I'm being flippant about it. I said, but really it was just that pragmatic and practical. Like, what, what, do you, what do you want me to say about it? We knew that car. The fact that it had been there for six or eight weeks after the bankruptcy was a was the fact that you've had been able to drive it for the last six it's weeks. Bonus. It, it, it could have gone anywhere. We know that car's gone. And the fact that they've just taken it tonight, the only difference is we now need to take a taxi to dinner. I think I've always been, I've always been that simple and, pr and pragmatic about this stuff, just because because dwelling on it is was 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 never going to solve anything, and you know I I just, I just had to had to get back on the but, horse and get back to work. But that's that's to me an ingredient that an entrepreneur has to have, because imagine you go through the experience that you went through bankruptcy, it becomes life defining in the way that it sends you down a dark spiral or it makes you think oh well the end is near i'm no good i can never do this in the first place and all of that kind of negative self-talk that demonstrates to me that that if you do go into that place then maybe you shouldn't have gone into entrepreneurship in the first place because you're you're dealing with a negative situation a, a failure of something but you failed forward I think I think the other thing that's important to understand about bankruptcy, and this was this was nothing I understood at the time, but if I ever talk to other people who were suffering, you know, suffering the kind of situation or worrying about going bankrupt now, the way I, the way I describe it, I don't want to trivialise bankruptcy in any way because look, you know, nobody wants to go bankrupt, but bankruptcy is always thought of as this horrible thing that's happened that, that that happens to you at some point that everyone's trying to avoid at all costs. But the analogy I always give is, think of bankruptcy as death. And if for that death to happen, you've been having some horrendous shit going on for probably months, possibly even years. And I would say, imagine you're a cancer patient with you know with terminal cancer, suffering chemo and illness and all the all the crap. The death is like your bankruptcy. It's actually it's probably a blessing. You know, you've just had you 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 you've, so the I guess the financial analogy is you've been getting red letters. You've not had any credit. People say by going bankrupt, your credit shot. Well, your credit shot anyway because because you've 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 probably got CCJs. You've certainly maxed out maxed out on your credit card. You're stressed to hell. You can't sleep at night because you don't know how you're going to be paying all these bills. And if anything, that bankruptcy is a blessing, a line a line drawn. Okay, you then need a plan in place about you know what 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 comes next, but. I think too many people, both from a, a personal bankruptcy perspective and a, and a business insolvency perspective, drag out the process. And I'm, I was guilty of this back then because, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Drag out the process far too long when they could have actually put themselves out of, out of the misery much, you know, much earlier. It's like when I look at businesses nowadays who, who want, want to raise finance, I see so many businesses where, you know, for example, they might, let's say, make 100 grand a year. And they've got a million quid with a debt on the balance sheet, and they come to me saying, "Oh, we'd like to borrow a million quid, please." Or, or well, one of two things: either I'd like to borrow a million quid to refinance the million quid of debt on the balance sheet, or can I borrow another hundred grand or two? Because if we can just keep this going for another twelve months, everything will change. And trying to trying to impart into these people that okay, you've got a nice bit of business there because you've obviously got something that's making you a hundred grand. But the million quid of debt is just is just sinking, and you're never going to get out of it. You're never possibly going to make that hundred grand profit into five hundred grand profit, seven hundred grand profit, and pay yourself out of this in a couple of years. You're just going to sink more and more and more underwater. Your head's never going to be in the right space, and ultimately, you're going to damage whatever good you have got in there because you know you're going to not pay staff, alienate whatever it is. But I guess. You know, there's a big, there's, there's obviously the the ego thing that that that, that comes with bankruptcy, and, and and the unknown and the thought that it is this terminal thing that that that, that you never recover from, and I kind of almost don't know how how you would ever educate people people in that space that it, that it probably is, it, it isn't as bad as you think it is. Now, again, I'm not saying that to trivialise it. It's, oh, let's all go bankrupt. It's great fun. It's not. But if it if it if it happens because there's been all this other bad stuff along the journey, then it's you know the the, the sooner you can take that pill to you know to, to clean the deck and move on, the better. Mm -hmm. We've gone off on a bit of a tangent, but no, no, you didn't. It makes a lot of sense. I think, and I think it's right to acknowledge that because. It's it, it it's taking that because you know I mean you think about the stress. I mean I've never been in that position, but you think about the stress somebody's going through when they're just trying to manage. They're just trying to manage. It's one more day, isn't it? It's one more day, and then to be able to put themselves in a position where 
okay, they step into a place they don't want to be, but at least now it's like, right. Well, I'm trying to think like of a start again, isn't it? Yeah, I'm trying to think of other analogies while we're talking. I mean, I mean it's probably like a bad relationship. I mean, I don't. You, you, you've you've been with your missus or your or, or or your mister for whatever you know, two years, five years, ten years, and every day, shit. You know, you you're moaning at each other. You don't like each other. You sleep in separate rooms. You can't stand the sight of each other. But but you don't ever split up because you're scared. You're scared to be alone. And uh, and. <laughs> You, you prolong it and prolong it, living this miserable life. But the day you do split, when the other person finally pull, pulls the trigger, you know, which you don't want to happen, and you know, moan about it for a couple or cry about it for a day or a week because you didn't want to be alone. But as, once you once you've gotten through that week or day or whatever it is of pain, it's like, oh my god, what a blessing! You know, the last so you've done this five years yeah. ago, type of thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Okay, so what did you? You go bankrupt. You come to the other side of it. Okay, so you opened another bunch of strip clubs. Is that what happened? No, um, I, <laughs> I, um, so I had to do something to, st you know, to, to start earning again. And as, as I mentioned before, I had a small finance business in amongst, yep. in amongst the other businesses I had. Say small, I, I had, you know, a, a small brokerage and probably a million pounds of our, our money lent out. And it was something I'd, I'd gotten into by accident because I'd spent so much time learning how to borrow, which is how I'd grown the businesses we got. And I guess I became a bit of a, a go-to guy, you know, between my peers and community and leads that, you know, I could, I, I knew all these funders or I had access to, you know, to, to lenders who could raise money when, when these guys, you know, couldn't get it from the bank. So I, I was starting just almost like as a bit of, bit of a hobby or a favor to people, you know, do, doing finance brokerage, which then led on to me lend, lending some money ourselves. So the start of the bankruptcy, I just, need, I just needed to put some food on the table again and earn, earn some commissions. And if you get finance brokerage right, it can, it can be pretty lucrative. And, uh, and really, I, I start, started the journey um, at, at first as a broker, and I was probably broking for another year or two. And then some of my original investors or some of my original lenders who, uh, okay, they'd been hit in the in the bankruptcy, so in my bankruptcy before, uh, but they knew that, you know, I'd not set out to defraud, and they were kind of saying, look, yeah, we want to do more stuff with you, you know, we'll, we'll back you, we'll lend to you. And really just started to, you know, to build, build a small finance book. And, that, you know, where we were 10 years ago is obviously materially different to, to, to where we are today. But it, it was the same concept, but it really just d depended on what on what lenders we had around. So, I mean, I remember the first guy who gave me any, any money, well, as an investment to lend on, probably gave us a hundred grand. Which meant that you know we could probably chop that up into twenty lots of a five grand loan or ten lots of a ten grand loan. Then you know the next guy probably gave us two hundred and fifty grand. Then maybe someone gave us five hundred grand. As as the time has gone on, you know our, our models changed for two reasons. One, because we've had access to to deeper pockets, therefore we've been able to do high, higher value loans. But also you know we've 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 learned our lessons as well. I mean when I was first lending, because investors were investing in me at quite a high rate i then had to put it on at an even higher to our borrowers at an even higher rate which meant that we were ultimately lending to some real dross and you know it sounds good it sounds good at the beginning oh, i'm getting three four five percent a month on this stuff but you know you're getting three four five percent a month for a reason um but again we were we had products built out built out of necessity so if we fast forward to where we're up to today, um, my, my lending model is very much based on my backstory. That I always say I was a business owner before I was um, before I was an investor. I was a borrower before I was a lender, um, and and I guess you know what what I understand as a lender is something that probably not very few, if any, of our peers do because I've I've been been sat you know, very much sat on both sides of the table, um, and you know not not only do we very manually underwrite every deal that we look at uh you know uh, i mean we're absolutely not a computer says yes computer says no i mean we very manually do what everything we do but we also get to look at it with i guess a business owner's set set of eyes as to how how can we structure this loan to make it work rather than just say no because it it, it doesn't fit the box how can we structure this loan to make it work what's the name of the company uh funding guru if you're a borrower you talk to us as funding guru funding guru so I go to Funding Guru and I am a business. I can only borrow money as a business. Is that correct? You can only borrow money for business purposes. I mean, you, you could you could be an individual, uh, but but you'd be that's just because I don't know. You might be doing property development in in your own name or something. But we only lend for business purposes. Yeah. Okay. And so I come to you. I want to borrow. I don't know a million dollars, million pounds, whatever it is. Um, but let's take that as an example. I want to build an extension onto my country estate. Can I do that? No. That's personal. personal okay. Yeah. I've bought a country estate that I'm renovating to sell. 
You could do that. Okay, I could do, do that. that. Okay, let's maybe choose another example. <laughs> I've got a business. The only way for me to take advantage of the opportunities, I can buy this stock at a really cheap price. I need to borrow a million dollars for the next 12 months. Sure. Okay, get all this stock in and then, okay. So ha, ha, that's the example. What interest rate do I pay typically? Um, what would my payment terms be? And and how quickly would I be able to access the capital? So if you're talking about purely how we lend us funding, Guru, we, so we want to do secured loans. So we, we only do secured lending. Typically, that will be secured against, against property. Uh, as a bare minimum, it's always secured against some kind of asset, whether that's plant and machinery. I mean, technically, it could be stock. But the reality is, if we're going to secure against stock, it's so liquid and, and, and movable that we probably also want to bring some kind of property security in there as well. Um, t- length of terms, we we do bridging style loans, so you know we're there to bridge a problem. I mean, obviously the word bridging is typically associated with property, uh, but you know there can be many situations why you need a bridge, like you say about this stock, where you know you're you're bridging the gap between buying it and selling it, or buying it and refinancing it. So most of our loan terms are, are nine to eighteen months. I mean, typically our, our interest rates again they vary depending on the on the security. Um, but in today's climate, you know, because obviously cost of funds for us has gone up, they're never going to be any cheaper than 1.75% a month. They probably could be up to 2.25, 2.5% a month. We we typically work in a in a monthly interest rate because uh, you know our loans could be for three months, six months, nine months. So we typically typically work on a on a monthly interest rate. So people could be paying 30% a year to borrow money. They can be, but I think what's very important to appreciate is. <laughs> not so much the interest rate itself but what's the actual absolute cost of that and then not just what is the cost of it what is the opportunity cost of you of you not doing it and that's why we only do business lending as well because we only want to be lending to a positive business story i mean that positive story ha- could involve some negativity around it as well hence why they're coming to us not a mainstream bank but we want to you might be paying us 30 percent, and that 30 percent on a million quid might be 300 grand but i want to know that that opportunity is making you 500 grand 700 grand, a million quid or something because because we're not you know we're not a pawnbroker we're not a predatory lender that's, that's that's there to nick an asset off you i i want you to be able to perform because i want you to pay us back listen if you don't perform and you won't pay us back then obviously we, we haven't you know we have a business to run an investor base to look after therefore we will have to act on our security but that's that's not our business model to go and do that you know we want to get paid back by you so we need to know that just to use the example of buying stock you know that kind of example would be something like i don't know you've found a million quid with a stock to buy that would normally cost you two million quid or three million quid but you've you, you, you've found it because someone needs to dump it quick and you can you you can buy it quick if you get it in the next seven days and you can pay a million pounds instead of two and a half three million pounds so obviously that's a great opportunity for you, uh, and therefore the three hundred grand that we might be charging you is is I'm not going to say it's pennies, but it's it's, it's a cost of business. It's a cost it's of doing business. Yeah, it's, it's, I could be selling that stock for three million. Exactly, it's going to cost me three hundred grand. I end up with two point seven differential. So actually. I'm in a really plus territory yeah. because of that. Okay, get it. You, you should, you know, people hopefully would always look at us and say, we shouldn't be costing you anything. We're just taking a bit of your profit. So can any company approach you? And any company can approach us. I mean, we're, any we're, company anywhere, or just UK, or where? So, so as I said a minute ago, we're, we're a secured lender, so we want to secure on something. We only secure against UK assets. Uh, I mean, technically, the borrowing entity could be non-UK, and we, we 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 some I mean we sometimes handful of times get that it could be a a Dubai business owned by an Indian guy who has a who who has a big house in Kensington that he wants to that you know he wants to use as security to raise money to fund that business. I mean that's we've seen that occasional situation, but typically we do we do UK stuff. Okay, so typically UK, any company in the UK can approach you. Do you have to have assets? that they can use as security. They can borrow money between nine and 18 months, okay? And you agree an interest rate based upon what's required at the time. And we see interest rates moving up and down at the moment, just up at the moment. So that's cost of borrowing is more. All right, understood. And it, so anybody that's a sole trader or anybody that employs a thousand people, anyone turning over a hundred grand, everyone turning over 10 million pounds, everyone's willing, you, you look at everyone based upon the criteria that you need. In theory, we can look at anyone. The, 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 the reality is, you know, a, 
a one man band who's been turning over ten grand, you know, ten, twenty grand a year for the last three years, who suddenly wants to borrow a million pounds for some opportunity, may may not be our realistic, credible customer. And and that would even be if he brought security to the table. Because like like I say, as much as much as we want the security, we don't want to have to take it. So if if we were looking at, at somebody who is clearly incapable of delivering on the plan, even if there was security on offer, it's it's not it's not likely that we do it. And, and I know on the one hand, I say that we're here to say yes when others would say no and find solutions, not excuses. But I also wouldn't want to put someone in a position that they that they shouldn't be in if, if that if that yeah, makes, makes sense. sense completely okay how many customers do you have we we don't do high, high volumes of loans i mean in terms of the stuff that, number stuff we write on our own book be less than 10 new loans a month okay and approximately how much do you lend um on average? so so our our, our, our our total loan books about about 60 million pounds okay uh, i mean over the course of me lending we've put over 500 million out to you know to, to businesses in the uk um i mean obviously we have, we have a, a mathematical average but you know there, there kind of is no average customer and we, we we we've got almost like two halves of the business we've got people who borrow between 100 grand and 500 grand if you like that's kind of our bread and butter where where we don't even really have to think too much you know it 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 fits a fits a profile and you know we, we can get out the door very quickly and we then have the kind of 500 grand to 2.5 million which you know requires a bit more thought might take a few extra days to process and then we do the occasional bigger volume deals i mean you know, we, we've got a deal on our books at the minute which is just over 8 million the guy owes i mean that's that's that's, that's very big for us uh you know we've we've done a five we've got you know we've had plenty of twos and threes and fours but we're at, you know we're, we're at that that kind of that space okay understood so Talk to me about bad debt. What percentage of your clients over the years have proved to be bad payers or left you with a so uh well just the uh, a sphincter muscle that's really... <laughs> <laughs> well if we underwrite it properly and take and take the uh, take the right security from the outset, then the sphincter should be intact. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but um, I mean, when you say how many have defaulted? In terms of default, insofar as they have gone outside the terms of the loan agreement, probably 30, 35% of our borrowers default in some way at some point. In terms of how many have gone so wrong that we've had to, that we've had to go and repossess the assets. I mean, I've repossessed less than two handfuls of properties in, 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 my, in my entire career of lending. That's not because, they, like I said, they haven't defaulted. It's because if someone defaults, we can hopefully get them back on track. Or if they default and it's unable to get them back on track, we'll always work in the best interests of of getting maximum value from that asset. So, you know, for example, if if somebody lives in a property that we've got security over, the best the best we can do is get a court order to be able to repossess that property, put it on the market, and then sell it. For me to do that, if I'm doing that hostile, it's probably going to take me nine or twelve months in 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 the process. If I if that borrower wants to be reasonable with us and say, listen, I put my hands up, we've failed. We accept this property needs to be sold uh, to, to therefore be able to repay your debt. And they do it with us in an, in an amicable way, and they put the house on the market and they show it round to you know to prospective purchasers and they behave as as good as they possibly can. And in return, I'll probably go light on the default interest with them as well. Then that would be, you know, that would be a better outcome than us being hostile about it, and you know, and 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 having having to run up a load of legal fees, yeah. and and so Try, trying to work with people, do, yeah, yeah, and, like, and you know, I don't see that's not us being soft. Uh, it's been it's been pragmatic to the situation that you know, if if we can if we can. All we want to do is get our money back. First, we want our capital. Second, we want our our, our interest rate. And third, if there is some default, then we, then we then we want that as well. Or we can play with that default if it, if it, if it gets a better situation. But you know, ultimately, like I said, you know, we're not. There's you know, an expression in lending of loan to own. You know, we're not into loan to own. You know, we're not a pawnbroker. That's why when we look at some of these deals where. On the face of it, it looks an easy deal because you say someone wants to borrow five hundred grand and the security against a million pound asset. I know I'm always getting my money back, but if I look at the actual business model and the person who wants to deliver on that business model, they haven't got a hope in hell of ever paying us back. And I just know I'm buying a headache from day one. Okay, let's move on to the other side now. So, where does this money come from? How do how do you get money to be able to lend? So we were, so you have got a billionaire 
So where, where does this money come? How, how do you go about raising that capital? So, so, so we raise our capital from from a, an international network of high net worth investors. Um, and you know, I mean, we've we've got invest investors all over the world. Uh, you know, t- typically in in sunny tax free places. You know, like like Monaco, like Dubai, like you know, like, like the Cayman Islands. And the, the, these are normally high net worths who 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 are sat who are sat on substantial capital that they want to deploy um, for them to generate an income from. Uh, in 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 a in a in a secure um, let's say known legal jurisdiction. Okay, so give me give me an example, stereotypical example of that kind of person. You telling me where they live, um, and what kind of benefit they would get. So so the benefit they're getting is is a, is a, is a secure return. Uh, on um, on high yielding high yielding income. You know, in interest. So that they they will put money with us either with us in general or into a into a specific deal for a specific period of time typically one of our investors i mean obviously the rates have moved up now at, you know we're talking beginning of 2023 aren't we so i mean t- in the old days we might have been paying eights nine tens now it's more like tens elevens twelves and 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 the investor will get that that kind of a return so so for these guys you know t- we're not normally dealing with someone where this is their last 50 grand i mean we we, we want someone to be investing a minimum of 100 grand before we even enter them really we'd only want that hundred grand with a view to it becoming at least five hundred thousand because in the same way that it's the same effort to deal with a million pound borrower as it is a 50 grand borrower you know it's the same effort to deal with a million pound investor as it is a 50 grand investor so we, you know, we'd rather deal with a smaller number of, of high, higher value people also i'm not, not going to say that we want particularly smart money because you know we're not we're not taking equity investors but you know we, we, we want people who do understand what we're doing uh, and that have got deep enough pockets to, to pull the trigger and put on pull the trigger quickly uh, if, if if we if we get a good deal to fund so i mean we we work with probably 35 to 40 you know in, in international investors our smallest guys probably got 250 grand with us our biggest got about 15 million and that's a, you know that, that's that's a, a mixture mixture of individual deals that people have got into because some, some, some of our investors will say look on a bigger deal like a three million pound deal we'll write up a nice little investment document set send it out to them and say look this is the borrower this is the asset this this is the structure of the deal do you want to be transparently into that and if they invest in that then they they, they get the the highs and lows of being involved in that deal by highs and lows what i mean is is there'll be a, a standard interest rate for it performing if that loan then doesn't perform, then whilst we're managing the deal, whilst we're collecting it, it will be accruing interest at a higher rate. And for example, if that investor was getting 12%, when it's in default, they'll be getting 18%. So when we finally collect the money off the borrower, then then the investor will have earned a higher rate of interest. We Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, I know it's the language you speak every day, but sure. I'm sure there'll be people listening right now that were like, what did he just say? So you got a high net worth investor, He's got plenty of cash. He gives you a million dollars, let's say, just for the sake of simple numbers, gives you a million dollars and you deploy it on different um, strategies that you see fit. You pay him, let's say, 12% a year, 1% a month. He gets that. Let's say you're charging 30%, so there's a difference there of 18% that your business takes and you have to operate your business. His his money invested is guaranteed against the asset that's been uh, essentially borrowed against. So his money is 100% capital protected yep. because you've got an asset there. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. Okay. If the person then defaults, how is there more interest? So if the, if the, if the borrower defaults, then because the way we'd work on that deal is we collect the money from the borrower to be able to then pay it on to the investor. So as long as the borrower is paying us, we've got the cat we've got the cash flow to pay the investor. Should the borrower stop paying us, then we don't sit in the middle and front the money. We manage the process, you know, to, to, to come to the best possible outcome, which hopefully could be just pushing them hard and they miss a month and they get back on track a month or so later. But if it's never going to get back on track and we're going to have to see this through to set to sell the asset, what will happen is there'll be no interest being paid, therefore no income to the investor. But instead of them earning interest at say 12%, they'll be accruing interest at say 18%, which means that there will become a point in time when that asset sells. And when that asset sells, 
the the six or seven or eight months of interest that they've missed instead of them getting say eight months of interest at one percent a month they'll get eight months of interest at one and a half percent a month okay so going back then to the borrower if the borrower defaults how long before you take the asset if they can't they're like sorry mate i'm really sorry take the property okay it's until you sell that property the, the that's when the borrower will be paying but yes i mean i mean i mean it would never normally be so quick and black and white i mean t i mean t typically you know some six or 12 month period well someone would stop let's say not pay at first and then we'd, we'd have to assess everything individual because it could be i mean there's so many different situations someone could say look i can't pay this month because i i don't know i've got a cash flow issue for a month but i'll double up next month well then fine we'll wait for them to double up next month if they say I mean, as lo as long as there's end in sight and and they're going to pay something in a reasonably you know quick amount of time, then we won't be taking any legal action. You know, we we won't be doing anything. As are, are you are you paying the interest monthly or yearly to the investors? Yeah. Uh, so we pay the investor on the basis on the same basis that we charge the borrower. So if if the borrower is paying it monthly, then we are physically paying it monthly to the investor as well. Yeah. So why doesn't it make more sense for you to pay it yearly? So if there are hiccups along the way, then you haven't got to worry about. Well, the investor. Why don't we pay the investor? Yeah. So why don't you pay the investor annually? Because if the borrower is borrowing the money and paying monthly, and they may have a oh I'll well, double up next month scenario, then the investor doesn't potentially suffer being part of that or worry well i guess i guess multiple answers i mean what one would be we would then have to put the put the cash we'd have to put the cash in to pay that investor up front well no if you're paying them annually in arrears oh annually in arrears well i mean i guess our, our investors typically typically like an income uh ah, okay i mean i mean that's what's exciting and interesting yeah investors, I, that regular income coming in I mean, yes 100 percent. i mean i mean we, we we have done you know and it's funny because you, you look at these people and you think they've actually got so much money they don't need the income but i just think there's something something like reassuring and psychological about about that that predictable monthly income i mean we we've done it's funny because we've done loans in the past and we you know we occasionally do them out of our own funds where if there is no provable serviceable income from the borrower we will just deduct the interest on day one we don't let it roll up but what we'll say for example is right mr borrower you're lending us a million so we're lending you a million quid and your interest is 20 grand a month for you know for for 12 months so that's 240 grand you need to pay us but i can't see where you're going to pay us that money from and i don't want to be going to going into a headache on day one so what i'll do is i will deduct from the million quid loan the 240 grand and i'll only physically pay you 760 grand on day one so we pay you 760 you don't make any payments at all for a year and then in a year um you you you, you give us a million quid and and that's something we'd often do with do with borrowers but strangely it's just something that most most investors don't seem to like or get the head around i mean i i love it because because there is no headache for a year there is also you're earning you're earning more interest because you're actually you're actually charging on a gross interest basis and knocking it off and only paying out the net so you're actually not earning 240 grand on a million quid you're earning 240 grand on 760 grand so it's like a a 36 percent return instead of a 24 percent return i mean for me it's so good for so many reasons but i just think psychologically you know people like to see that 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 predictable income okay so you've got an, uh, essentially a product that if people want to get some money they can get some money you've got investors that come they've got a great opportunity for them they're getting 12 percent on their money and there's no i'm sure there's no shortage of people out there that want to get involved in investing in stuff like this where does the risk lie for the investor where's their real are they literally not in any risk at all there might be some delayed payment but there's actually no risk i mean look uh, yeah we can never be naive enough to say that something is totally totally risk-free i mean we, we say it's 100 percent capital secured uh, or, or prop asset secured because we've you know we're taking security over that asset i guess the risk would cut well the, the risk would come in in that is there enough value in the asset to to pay the investor back should something go wrong and that that could happen in one in one of two ways one is if markets markets drop substantially and therefore the asset was no longer say worth a million pound that we lent on it if we've lent for example six six hundred and fifty grand against a million pound asset and you know markets drop dramatically and that asset's now worth 600 grand 700 grand and someone throws the keys back except we've got to collect out then the you know there could be a shortfall left the other side is 
if for example we've lent at 70 70 loan to value and the borrower stops paying and therefore the interest starts accruing up and all of a sudden you know that accruing needs to add on to what you've lent so instead of it being at 70 percent, it's 75 80 85 and you know then, then there's cost to sell it that but then all of that all of that should be taken care of in in in, in the underwrite so for example when we look at a, a property and that we're going to lend on we would always take a view or not take a view we would always try and understand very clearly how long it would take us to collect out of that property if something went wrong so for example if we needed to repossess a property that was somebody's family home that they lived in with their wife and kids it would always take us longer to get access to that property going through the courts etc than it would if it was a, a commercial office building or or, or, or a buy-to-let property so what we'd have to do is say well look i don't know the interest rates two percent a month we know it's going to take us 12 months to collect that property so that's 20 if they stop paying that's 24 percent of fat we need already therefore if we've lent on that property at 75 percent loan to value the 24 percent takes us up to 99 percent and that's not taking account of any other costs or any other problems or anything therefore we we will be too risky and and too aggressive to lend at 75 we should maybe lend at 60 percent on that property and make sure we build enough fat in so that's I guess that, that that's what we do as <laughs> a as the lender and b as the the representative representative of of the investor because you know we can always we can always do a riskier deal that pays pays the uh, charges the borrower more money and pays the investor a higher loan to value but I think you know, what I've so sort of pays them a higher interest rate but what I've very much learned over the years is that um, you know it's it's really a false economy you know you 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 look at the th things where you're lending at three or four percent a month and go well that must be more exciting getting four percent a month and two percent a month but normally you know the extra two percent you're making you end up losing it in bad debt and headache and operational co co costs and everything else so everything we do we we want to be we want to know what's the exit route and are we 100 percent capital secure before we start so Going back to your yeah. question, can the is it a hundred percent secured? I'd like to think it is if we do our job properly, but I also think the worst, worst, worst case scenario is maybe a fraction of the, if everything went totally wrong, a fraction of their capital may be at risk. Not you know, not a total wipeout of everything that's there. Got it. Understood. From young, hardworking, spunky kids to strip club owner to bankruptcy after borrowing lots of money to lender, to building a lending business and becoming as successful as you are. What an interesting story that is. I just like the spunky kid bit. Did you like that? That's an American <laughs> term, isn't it? spunky kid. I don't know why. Why didn't spunky kid? I mean, it's because your boat's probably called Squirter, isn't it? But Matt, thank you so much for coming to explain that on the show. I really wanted to understand that. And I think the people listening and watching this will have a much better idea. What, 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 what would that type of investing be called? Is that peer-to-peer -peer lending? What is it called? I mean, I guess technically it's peer-to-peer -peer because we're almost like a conduit matching an investor with, with a borrower. I mean, although peer-to-peer -peer tends to be used more in the, the platform environment, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I mean, as our level, I'll probably call it more syndicate, syndicated investing, uh, some, some, you know, something along those lines. Okay, and the company name again is Funding Guru. So, so we, we, we have two brands. We have Funding Guru, if, you're talking, if we're talking to a borrower, mm -hmm. and we have Huddle Capital, if we're talking to an investor. They're both the two sides size of the same coin um but uh, but but we, we we have a different brand and a different style of dealing with people so we raise money for our investors as huddle and it's funding guru that deploys that money to the borrower okay so if you are looking to raise capital within your business and you've got uk assets and you think that might be applicable to you then you need to be talking to funding guru okay and again if you're an investor and you want to invest money into structures like this where you can essentially get a nice income on your money then huddle huddle Huddle, H-U-D-D-L-E, Huddle Capital. Huddle Capital. That's the one you need to be looking for. Matt, thanks so much for coming to join us today. Thanks, Ben.